ברוך השם, you're a bad Jew. שלום. Welcome back to another episode of Bad Jew, the place where there is no such thing as a bad Jew. And also, happy Hanukkah to you and your family and the listeners out there. It's really a treat that on this Hanukkah, you chose our podcast to listen to. I'm really flattered and I really, really appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. With me today is Jacob Churchborn, the most Christian sounding name we've ever had on this podcast. Jacob, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm good, man. Thank you so much for that great intro. And uh, yeah, definitely no doubt about the name there, but happy yeah. to everybody. And, you know, I hope everybody has a good first night and really appreciate coming on the show. Absolutely. And by the way, to call him out like that, he'll explain how his name, like why his name is the way it is. It's such an interesting story. That's a perfect segue into talking about the four minute bad you challenge right eventually under this podcast where you tell your life story in four minutes. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Excellent. All right. So my name is Jacob Churchborn. I'm originally from Vass, North Carolina, small town in the middle of nowhere. I'm a military kid. Dad was in the military for over 30 years. So we moved around a little bit, but then settled down here on a cow farm. Grew up raising cattle, living the cowboy lifestyle. Um, grew up Jewish, but not really. didn't really have a community because of where we lived. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. Ended up playing sports my whole life as I was a kid. I got the opportunity to go play lacrosse in college at North Carolina State University. Graduated with a degree in sport management. Moved to Israel for a job. I worked with the Israel Lacrosse Association, coaching kids all over the country. I was based out of Ashkelon, but we were in Netanya. We were in Herzliya, Bertuvias, Therot, all over the place. And it's truly been the best two years of my life. And I say that with, you know, my whole heart. It's been an incredible experience. And I ended up also playing pro hockey while I was in Israel. Got the opportunity to play in the Israel Elite Hockey League. Shout out with the Batyam Dolphins. Finished in second place this year. Hopefully we'll, you know, get that championship next year. And I've also had the opportunity to play lacrosse and hockey for the national teams of Israel in several different locations around the world. Been truly humbling, incredible experience. Now we'll get into the last name thing. My last name is Churchborn. I am a Jew. I know it's confusing. We'll go back to that. So my ancestors moved to America about two generations ago. They had to change their name at immigration to avoid discrimination, so on and so forth. Because as we know, early 1900s America uh, was not a great place to be if you were a Jew or any other race for that matter. And my family was both. <laughs> so. Um, my grandparents originally moved from India, British occupied India, to the United States. Um, and then my other side of the family was Jewish. So we ended up, they made up a name and uh, just kind of went with it. And it's stuck ever since. So that explains the Jew being with the last name Churchborn. Then a little bit of an intro into what I do now. Still work as a youth development coordinator with the Israel Lacrosse Association. Love my job. It's incredible. Ever since October 7th, you know, life kind of changed forever. And now I am proud to say that I'm the CMO, Chief Marketing Officer of Safi Israel. We'll get into what that is later on in the show and the initiative and so on and so forth. But I'm so proud to be a part of it and super proud the, to be doing the work that we're doing, helping soldiers and just helping Israel get back on its feet after, after what happened on October 7th. So there we go. Awesome. 
Great use of the four minute bad Jew challenge. Well done. You did it. You now have your right of entry onto the podcast. We can finally begin. But that was awesome though. And I, I really do love the story about your last name. I think it's I think it's very considered going back to the original name your family had. Uh, yeah, so I've I've considered it before, but at the same time, my family has built so much history with this name. Uh, you know, my dad was in the military for 30 plus years. His dad before him, my great grandfather, when he immigrated, joined the military and fought in World War II, Korea. You know, he was wounded twice. So, you know, we thought about it, but at the same time, it's like, no, because we built so much history with this name. It's who we are now. So we're sticking with it. Makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. So that's pretty significant. And I, I thank you for your family service. And, and I also know, you know, you, you also had some experience in the IDF or, or you at least were going to have some experience in the IDF. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I was supposed to draft to the IDF at the end of this year. So right around this time, like January or December. And, uh, and then the war broke out. So my draft day was delayed because I was supposed to draft into combat and there is nobody to train combat soldiers currently because everybody's called up defending our country. But before my drafting day, I attended a program called Sabbat Mikey. It's one of the premier IDF pre-army programs in the country. It's run by a bunch of former lone soldiers who just want to get other lone soldiers prepared Hebrew wise and physical wise for the army. So I'm very proud to say I was a graduate of that program. It was an incredible experience. All the guys that were in it with me, some of them are serving now. Some of them are still waiting to draft. And it, we really went through kind of all everything together. And it was a, it was a great experience. So. Well, it's absolutely incredible that A, you had that opportunity that you were in that program and, and B as well that, I mean, you were there. And by the way, you would think that as soon as war would be called, you'd think that the draft would then accelerate you to the front lines. But I understand what you're saying. You don't want to send someone with lack of preparedness into the front lines. So it's, I think it's actually a pretty smart move. And now you and uh, a, lot, a lot of the, the fellow veterans that, that, you, or that you were describing earlier are now working together in this organization, Zafi Israel. We'll talk about that in a second. The subject for this podcast is how did Israel respond to October 7th? Or maybe even what changed in Israel? since October 7th. And as someone who has been in and out of Israel since then, I'm, I know you have a lot of personal accounts on that. I'd love to get started on learn about, you know, what was the initial, what was the state of Israel before the October 7th attacks? I think we've heard a few things, but it'd be it's better to talk to someone who was actually there. Yeah. So the state of Israel before the October 7th attacks was, I would say, extremely divided. There were protests every Saturday in Tel Aviv, huge protests against the judicial reform. It was being passed by the Netanyahu government. And some would say his government is a little bit to the right, or some would say it's extremely far right, depending on your opinion. But they definitely were trying to push through something that a lot of people were against. So I would say Israel was extremely divided. A bunch of people were saying, oh my gosh, what's the future of our country? Where are we going to go from here? It's extremely concerning. And that was the crisis on everybody's minds until October 7th. And then we really, I would say, got a little bit of perspective. Fascinating. And, you know, I think there's a parallel here. There's a biblical parallel here. The reason why the second temple was destroyed was because the Jewish people were divided. And here we suffered the worst attack since October 7th. And 
it's because we were, well, I don't know if it was because, but the bottom line is we were divided before, as you just pointed out. So suddenly we, yeah, I would agree with you on that. I would say like, if you look at what happened leading up to October 7th, we were extremely unprepared because we were, our resources were per se somewhere else, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what's come out about intelligence and so on and so forth leading up to, there was intelligence, but it's not what people were focused on at the time. And it led, unfortunately, to a, a tragic event. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I quite frankly, I think, I think we're still in the fog of war. So it, it's really hard to make conclusions. And anyone who is making conclusions right now, I think, is running a fool's errand. I think they're passing on misinformation if they are doing so. So... I don't know. I find it. I find the whole thing really intriguing, and it'll be very interesting to see how history tells the story. But speaking of telling the story, you know, so now you have a nation divided, and then October seventh happens, the worst death toll that we've experienced as Jews since the Holocaust. And where were you when that happened? So I was in southern Israel. I live in Ashkelon, which is right. a city eighteen kilometers from the Gaza border. And on that day, I was at my, my former girlfriend's house. She lives in a moshab called Gibati, which is north of Ashkelon. It's kind of in between Ashkelon and Ashdod, if you're, if you're familiar with the area at all. And a moshab, for those who don't know, is a farming community. So it's a little bit more rural, a little bit more out there, not as much security as per se. And that's where I was located when everything started. That's insane. And I mean, that 18 miles is not 18 miles or 18 kilometers, sorry. 18 kilometers. So even shorter than 18 miles. That, that's not a very far distance from Gaza. And, and did, did you experience any, any, any violence that day? Were, were, what did you do? So the day started off with us getting woken up by the alarms at 6.30, like many other Israelis around the country. We were woken up at 6.30 by the alarms. We rushed into the bomb shelter. It's pretty normal in the South to get alarms. So we were just like, oh, you know, here we go. Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad just shooting off rockets again. You know, they do it all the time. But that's the unfortunate reality in Southern Israel. But so we went into the bomb shelter. We came back out and then we went in again because there was another alarm. And then again, because there was another alarm. And that's when we started to realize something was a little not something. Something is a little off here. And then my phone buzzes and it's a video of Hamas terrorist inside the city of Starot, which is maybe 14 kilometers away from where I was. And then you start seeing videos of hang gliders, paragliders coming in from Gaza with armed men on them, trucks streaming through holes in the fences, guys dropping in by parachute into the music festival that was happening down south. And just these horrifying images. And that's when we knew something was wrong. That's when we knew this is not normal and we could be next because of how close we are to the Gaza border, the proximity. There's a new feeling in the air, something that maybe you're not really familiar with because we're seeing Hamas pull off tactics that has, has never been seen before in, in previous attacks. Yeah, not, we've never seen that before. Never. It's usually just rocket barrage, rocket barrage, you know, everybody running to the shelters. Never had we seen them crossing over the border fence. We thought that was one of the most secure places in our country. You know, we're, we're surrounded on all sides by people that aren't necessarily fond of us. But I was always under the impression that that is the most secure border in the country. Right. And then suddenly 
bulldozers and trucks are testing that theory very, very well. I'm scared to ask this question and you'll have to forgive me for going to a personal place without permission, but did you know anyone who was attacked by? Yeah. Yeah. I had one acquaintance friend who unfortunately lost his life on this, on that day. His name is Moore Cohen. He was one part of the original Israeli U-19 lacrosse team that traveled to a world championship. He was in this, ran in the same friend group as me, same athletes group as me. And he was unfortunately at the, the Nova Music Festival. And in the hours afterwards, everybody was like, where's Moore? Where is he? And then eventually we got the confirmation that he, he unfortunately lost his life. May his memory be a blessing. I'm so sorry, Jacob. It's terrible. It's terrible. And so what happens to the country of Israel after that? Because there's, there's that, there's that phase on day one where now, you know, as, as soon as, as soon as, you know, six 30 in the morning, as you said, now you have to re-secure the border. You have to keep, you know, put the terrorists back into Gaza, push them back and force them to retreat. And you hear these amazing stories of heroism where people are driving and they pick up Israeli friends along the way and they get, they call to arms. And they go and clear the roads from terrorists. You've heard, we've heard a few of these stories since then. These amazing stories of, of either Israeli soldiers or security members doing, you know, protecting the roads one road at a time and, you know, protecting uh, Moshavs and protecting Kibbutzim. So once everything's secured, now it's October 8th. Mm-hmm. What's, What's the general feeling from there? I would say we still didn't even feel secure because there was, it was confirmed by the army that there are still hundreds of these terrorists running around Israel. We don't know. They didn't know where they were. They didn't know they, they could, they, you know, they could have been anywhere. You know, they got in way farther than the army ever anticipated that they would ever. And, you know, they, obviously the army did, they responded I wouldn't say they re- they responded not in a timely manner on October 7th. That's become public knowledge, but they responded in a brave manner and they went in there with everything they had to save as many people as they could. And unfortunately, just to, due to lack of resources, there were still Hamas terrorists running around all over the country. So no one really felt safe. No one wanted to leave their homes. No one wanted to go anywhere without being armed. There were armed men placed at the gates of just about every Moshav kibbutz around the country just to make sure that everybody was going to be secure in those communities. And it was just the overall feeling of fear and uncertainty, I would say. Is that fear and uncertainty still existing or has that become the normal to the point where you're numb to it? I would say it's still there. You know, it's, it's what's the next day going to bring. You know, I think Israelis, I think some of them feel safer now per se because with the the army called up as it is but there's just so much uncertainty now with the hostage situation obviously what's going to happen to them how are we going to get them out you know we've gotten several out to this point but there's still a ton of people in there and we don't know if they're alive or dead you know and there's there's a ton of uncertainty there and a lot of people israel's a very small country and everybody has connections with everyone so there's just a lot of fear about friends, family, so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, right now at the time that we're recording this, this is December 7th, 2023. And I, you know, what has it been? 110 hostages have been released. Thank God. 
somewhere around that number there was there's been a there's been a large amount released in the the ceasefire time period that was occurring there right right and then the ceasefire is now over back to wartime you know got the war rages on in gaza as we know mm-hmm. the north has for the most part been cleared outside of a few strongholds they're calling it the centers of gravity yep. in the gaza strip and now yeah it's, it's it's just a very interesting place to be as a as a as a jewish nation i don't know i i guess i guess what i'm getting at is since the hostages have been returned has there been a sense of relief has there been any sense of normalcy no sense of normalcy whatsoever you know i i think people are very it's still there's still milawim reservists called up i think when the hostages returning it was more so happiness as per se that this this thank god those people are alive but also a sense of sadness with oh my gosh look what they went through what they experienced no one should ever have to experience that in their lives and these people are coming home and we don't know how they're gonna react in years to come and and these are children these are women these are older people and it's just it's something that no one should ever have to experience ever and it's going to be a hard journey, hard road back for them in the country as a whole. One thing you also brought up as well was the politics pre-October 7th. What do the politics look like now? I would say among the Israeli populace as a whole, like the average person, united, 100% united. We wow. are united towards defeating one enemy, getting our people home. Maybe there's some divides on how we do that. But I would say the majority of people want to achieve the exact same goal. Pretty much the nation of Israel would be happy regardless of how we got there. But at least we're united in that sense. Yep. Wow. Okay. United in getting to the ending that we all want. How we get there, a little bit more divided. And you'll see that in the government as well. Just among the government itself, they're pretty divided on how they want to do it. Mm -hmm. They've at least put on the face of unity. They, and the days afterwards, you know, Netanyahu, he brought in, you know, people he would have never worked with before into a wartime government. And now they're all working together to achieve the same goal. Incredible. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up Netanyahu because he was facing a lot of criticism for the judicial reform that we saw in Israel pre-October 7th. That's not even on the forefront of people's minds right now. It makes me wonder if as soon as this war is over, if things will go back to the way it was before. No less. Netanyahu, I think, has gotten some heat off of him since then. I do wonder if the, you know, how the international community impacts what's happening inside internally in Israel. Do you have anything that you can comment on in regards to that? Yeah. So I think, I think there's a lot of anger per se at Netanyahu himself by the people of Israel, just kind of like you were distracting yourself with your policies and look what happened to us mm-hmm. in a way. And that, that's how people are kind of reacting to it. And that's coming from the right. That's coming from the left. That's kind of coming from everywhere. And the most recent poll that I saw, I think was put out by the Times of Israel, said that a good amount of people would like to see him gone when this is all over. And- yeah, I, I think that, that, sounds, that sounds pretty realistic. And it's, I, I, I think I could probably put a few couple hundred dollars on that bet, too, Yeah, if that were to happen. Yeah, I think I think that would definitely it's it's definitely not going to be there by the time that this is over just because of the amount of anger and a lot of people hold him responsible. Right. I don't see him recovering from this. 
Yeah, yeah, this was this was pretty bad <laughs> to say the least. I don't know how else to put it. I think it's the only technical way to express it is that that was pretty bad. Yeah. But I'd like to shift gears from that part of the conversation because you did something pretty remarkable. In fact, we were introduced by a mutual friend who said, you got to check out this guy's story. And I'm really glad that she did reach out because you were about to be drafted. You're about to literally say the IDF. This war starts and you can't. So you went ahead and put matters into your, into your own hands. How did you do that? Yeah. So in the days afterwards, there was just kind of a sense of a feeling of helplessness as per se. Like, I want to do something. I want to do something. And literally the day afterwards, I drove a friend of mine to his base in Tel Aviv. I donated blood and I immediately started helping drive supplies to different locations. You know, somebody was like, we need somebody to drive some things to some soldiers in this place. Can you do it? And I was like, yes. And then I got a request from a friend of mine to drive some things down to a base called Selim in the south of Israel. And to not have, the road getting there was a bit dangerous. There were still Hamas terrorists running around. There were, you know, there, not everything was secure. So I needed a, I don't have a gun license in Israel yet because I have not served. So I texted in a group chat and said, hey, can anybody come along with me who has a gun? Got a response from this guy named Sammy Zemmel, former paratrooper in the IDF. And he was like, I'll go with you. So we hop in my Ford Focus with a car full of stuff, drive down south, and we get down there and drop off this gear to the last outpost before the Gaza border. This was before the IDF had entered Gaza. They were in the prep phase, the prepping stage, obviously. And we drove to as far as you could drive before you get into the Gaza border and dropped off bags of goodies and essential equipment for these guys. And kind of ever since then, every single day, we just started driving to different bases all over the country and, you know, getting donations from people outside of the country and just getting together supplies. And me and Sammy were in one car and then our co-founders, Hanan and Zach, were in the other, other car. And they were driving one place and we were driving another. And we did that almost every single day until we realized that we could probably make the initiative a little bit bigger. So we're driving the car one day and Sammy goes, why don't we start a fund? Why don't we, we, you know, we get a donation page. So all the money that people want to give us goes to one centralized place so we can get the essential supplies to these guys in a more timely and efficient manner. So, and that's where Safi Israel was born. And ever since then, we've been able to raise over $250,000 in the six weeks since the war started or since we started operating. We've been able to drive over to over 80 locations to drop off supplies. And that's totaled about 9,000 miles all over Israel. Wow. So let's go over the metrics one more time. 9,000 miles driven to $250,000 raised. Over $250,000, yes. And then what, what else What else do people need to know? Over 80 locations we've dropped things off to. So soldiers all over the place. And we've, you know, Hanan, my co-founder, he likes to say this metric, metric a lot. 20 rockets dodged. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. I love that. And, and when it comes to, to donating to you guys, what, what, what's different about donating to you guys versus other organizations that also deliver to the idea? So I would say where we stand out is that your donations are going directly to soldiers, getting what they requested. 
So a lot of other organizations, everything goes into one big fund and that's allocated how they see fit. Ours are specific orders given by soldiers we are in contact with. We get them the specific items they want and get it to them as soon as they can. So the funds are going towards things that soldiers are actually requesting and things they actually need. This could include bulletproof vests with ceramic plates. This could include helmets, boots, med kits. That's one thing we're really transitioning into is getting what's called an IFAC, which is a personal medical kit. Because in the IDF, unfortunately, you are sent out into the field with one tourniquet and you're taught not to use it on your buddy, only yourself. So if you can get the gist of that, that's not a very efficient way to do things. So our idea is to get every single person their own personal medical kit. So these are where, that's where these funds are going. That's what makes us different. We are getting the soldiers exactly what they requested to where they are as soon as we can. So there's a cost of travel and there's also a cost of, of you guys personally who are running this to just maintain and upkeep your own personal lives while doing this. How is that even maintained? So everything, so we do a lot of things out of our own pockets. For example, our food, our gas is usually out of our own pockets when we're driving to these places. Sometimes shipping comes out of our own pockets and we don't have enough money in the fund. But everything that goes into the fund goes into what we're doing. So we take the money from the fund as we see fit and we set, we 99% of the time put it towards the gear. We're like nothing for us, straight to the gear, straight to the soldiers. And if we need to pay for our own gas to get it there, we will. Where, where are you guys getting the money then for the gas and like for your, for your rent to the, your, your day job? What is, where, do you, where does that come from? Yeah. So, you know, my day job is working for the Israel Across Association. And luckily they, I, I use my, my salary from that to pay for my own expenses. And my co-founders are, one of them has a job, but they are all students. So this is coming out of their own funds. These guys are IDF veterans and they are in university studying business and a bunch of other things. You can see on our website, you know, there's descriptions of every, everything everybody's studying, but it's coming out of our own pockets. And that, that sometimes is hard on us, but there's a better, there's a, there's a bigger cause at hand here and we're willing to make that sacrifice. That's absolutely insane and beautiful and amazing in, the, in all the best ways possible. So you guys are not accepting 100% of the proceeds. All the 100% of the proceeds are going right to the IDF. That doesn't, I'm not talking about just the gear. I'm talking about from a monetary standpoint. None of this covers the cost. You guys are covering the costs alone. Yeah. So all of the proceeds go directly towards buying this equipment and getting it to the soldiers. I, I mean, I'm, I probably speak for the audience here. I'm mind blown with that because so few nonprofits out there can claim that they also give a hundred percent of that. Is that the goal with Zaki is this temporary effort based on this monetary exchange, or is there a longer term goal that your organization has after the war? So I would say we definitely want to continue what we're doing after the war. And there is a long-term plan in place that we've been working on to make this a more sustainable nonprofit and sustainable initiative. So right now we're just focused on getting the guys what they need to keep us safe. That's the whole idea. We, that is the number one goal because if they can't keep us safe, then where, what's it going to happen to Israel? This is the, uh, this is one of the most dangerous points in Israel's history. And I can't stress that enough. We are at a tipping point and without the IDF to keep us safe, what is going to happen to us? It's completely up in the air. 
Jacob, I'm, I'm, I'm humbled. I'm, 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 I'm kind of speechless right now. The work that, that your organization is doing is incredible. And, you know, one thing I, I really hope that we can achieve from this point on is a continued partnership. This is what my plot, what I've been doing with my platform. We just made a post recently on Instagram about a Hanukkah special or donate where we're encouraging people to go buy our clothing and our merchandise for bad Jew. A hundred percent of the profits though, we've decided, we've decided to profit with Zahi Israel on, on these matters. So buying our merch guarantees that they're going to get a hundred percent of that profit, but no less. I, I want to encourage the listeners that are on here to skip the middleman, which is me right now, skip merch store and go check out Zafi Israel. We have the link in the bottom of the screen right now for those on YouTube, but we also have the link in the description of this podcast where people can go and help the war effort for the sake of that tipping point that you just described. So, you know, I'm really, I'm really moved by the efforts that you and your friends have done. This is an incredible initiative that you guys have taken. Really appreciate that. And, you know, it's really, I guess I would say call to action is just do what you can, you know, I know not everybody is a multi-million dollar donor, but donating like, you know, a couple dollars, it goes towards buying something. It goes towards buying baby powder, which I can tell you is an essential in the field. It goes towards buying deodorant or a snack for these guys. We get everything that they request. So yesterday we did a supply drop with a good friend of mine, Sean Haber. He's at the Barefoot Athlete on Instagram. And he did a supply drop for him yesterday. And everything that he asked for, we got. So we got him baby powder. We got him deodorant. We got him a camelback that hooks onto his vest. We got him tactical pants. We got him a tactical shirt. And then we also were able to get him and his entire unit new combat boots which was made possible by a donation from a donor here in the United States. And we were able to buy all of them brand new combat boots because they were complaining that their feet were just an incredible pain because none of them had had, you know, they, some of them were using the same boots they used while they were in the army, which for some of them was like over five years ago. So it's uh, it was huge to be able to see that smile on his face. And he was just so happy, not just to, get the gear, but just that somebody cares about him and somebody came out there to see him because he's based in the middle of nowhere. I can tell you it's not anywhere that a tourist would see when they come to Israel. And seeing that smile, that's what I've been saying, is just seeing that smile on people's faces when we drop the stuff off, that's everything. I think that, that you hit on something that is not considered a lot when thinking about war and the war effort. We already know war to be this miserable invention by mankind. But we oftentimes forget that the human condition inside this war, it surpasses the physical violence that's existing and it has an impact and a toll on the mental health. So being said, you know, you got this battle of morale as well to just keep it up and to stay positive and stay happy. That's so hard to do. Not to stay happy because you're not going to be happy in a war zone, but just to stay motivated and stay engaged, I suppose, to have a glimmer of hope that there is an end, that you'll come out surviving and that you'll be a hero coming out of this, that you are not alone, that you have a whole nation supporting you behind your back. That's huge. That's couldn't be more important. So I think that's the, one of the pain points that your organization answers. And it's amazing that you're looking after these soldiers on such a individual level. I really can't wait for you to reach the 500,000 level and the 700,000 level and the $1 million level. You guys are going to keep doing amazing things. And so I, I, I'm, 
really excited for this partnership. Seriously. Well, we're, we're excited to partner with you. It's incredible that you've been willing to help us out. And 100% of the proceeds, again, for anybody listening to this from the merch store, 100% of the proceeds are going to go straight towards soldiers. Like I said, the difference between Safi and other nonprofits, we don't fund ourselves. The founders take none of the money. It goes straight into these soldiers. Maybe one day we'll get to a point where that's possible, but that's not what we're concerned about right now. We're concerned about getting everything to these soldiers they need as fast as we can get it to them. Amazing. Jacob, thank you for being on this podcast. Everyone go to zahiisrael.org slash en for the English slash he for the Hebrew. Please go and donate to the, directly to the IDF through Zahi Israel right now. Thank you to our listeners for being a part of this podcast, and we'll see you next time. Shalom. Sure.